Welcome to Midweek, a place where we dive deep into Scripture. So grab your Bible, a pen, and a notebook, and get ready to study God's Word. All right, we're going to go into John chapter 5. We're going to look at verse 1 through 18 tonight in John 5. And if you have your outlines there, if you picked them up, I have, I think, six fill-ins tonight. It's what I have for you, uh, six statements I put in there as we go along. Now, I want to begin by explaining something because it's going to make sense. What I'm going to say in the beginning is going to make sense as we go along in this story. Now, I began my Christianity, my first, I would say, um, about five years of my faith. I was what's called a legalist. Does anybody know basically what a legalist is? Yeah, how many were our ex-legalists here? How many still are legalists here? No, I'm just joking. Uh, okay. no, you, you wouldn't survive any beginnings if you were still a legalist, okay? Um, but I'm, I'm an ex-legalist. That's the way I was brought up in my faith. I got saved at 23, and so I spent about five years being a legalist. And let me, let me explain to you what a legalist is so that when we get to the gunfight at the OK Corral tonight between Jesus and the Pharisees, it'll make a lot more sense, all right? A legalist basically... It's, uh, it's uh, righteousness defined by human beings. We decide what is righteous and what isn't righteous. Also, um, legalists can use the legalism as a position of power and influence over other people. They're going to make you feel bad if you're not going to do what they think that you should do. And legalists love to do that. They think they're on God's side telling you what God, is tell, what God needs to tell you. So they have all these... Um, I remember I had a bunch of lists of do's and don'ts, things I could do, things I couldn't do. And if I did the things I was supposed to be doing, I felt like I was right before God. If I didn't get the list perfectly right, I felt like I was bad before God. Any amens on that one right there? So legalism, the best way to put it for me is it really is a spiritual and a mental torture. It's just torture in your soul because you'll never feel right before God. You'll always wonder, where do I stand? Now, let me talk about this thing, where do I stand? Because um, our standing before God is always right because of the blood of Jesus, correct? Now, one of the things, take this idea of our standing, uh, where do I stand? One of the things that I find in relationships, and I found it in myself when I I was younger in, in my early married years, is that many people do wonder, say, in a marriage or where do I stand with you? Where do I really stand with you? Do, do you still love me? Do you still care about me? And this can weave in and out from day to day or week to week. And this is a real big problem in people's hearts. They wonder, where do I stand with you? Now, you take that concept right there because in a relationship, that's brutal, isn't it? Always wondering, where do I stand? Well, you take that and you apply it in legalism and you apply it to God. And you're going to walk around every day wondering, where do I stand with you? Am I right with you today, God? Do you love me today, God? Are we okay today, God? Now, you should never, ever have to wonder and think questions like that. Because of what Jesus has done, you and I are always in right standing before God. Are we not? Are we not? Look, I've counseled so many married couples over the years, I, I, I won't share them, but some of the most bizarre behaviors and most bizarre control issues come out when you wonder, where do I stand in this relationship? 
I would tell you stories, you'd be like, no way. I go, yes way, yes way. And then you try to explain to people, this is why they're doing this. This is why the control comes out. This is why the fear comes out. Because they wonder, where do I stand? Do you really love me? And so when it comes to God, <clears throat> legalism always says, well, I, don't, I don't know if I'm right with you or not. So what legalism does, it denies the grace of God. It just denies the mercy of God, and it believes that itself has to put forth the effort to be right before God. So you're, you're going to live in one of two extremes. You're either going to be prideful because you're getting it right today, or you're going to be depressed because you're getting it wrong today. But you're never going to find a middle ground in that one whatsoever when it comes to legalism. Now, the Pharisees that we're going to see tonight in this story about the lame man at the pool of Bethesda, they are the professional uh, legalists. They're so good at it. And there's going to be a big gunfight between Jesus and the Pharisees at the OK Corral today, okay? I love when Jesus and the Pharisees go at it because he always makes them look like idiots. <laughs> and I just love that because who in the world's going to outsmart Jesus, God in the flesh, right? And so we're going to look at that today. So I got six things for you tonight. Number one, and that is this in your notes, only in the cross do we sinners find mercy. Only in the cross do we sinners find mercy. Now, I'm going to read verse 1 and 2, and I love stuff like this because I like the symbolism of everything. But verse 1 and 2 say this. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there was in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. Say five. Five. Five porticos. Okay. So Jesus now, we find him, he is heading to Jerusalem for a feast. What feast? Not sure. We know in chapter 2, it was the feast of Passover, but we, now we know time has passed. So it's maybe, and I can't, I can't tell you it's for sure, this is the feast of Pentecost, which, by the way, Pentecost would be this Sunday. It's the 50th day after the, the resurrection. So Pentecost is the day the church age was born in Jerusalem. And that's this Sunday. So it's always a real cool thing. So Jesus, more than likely at this time, he's heading up for Pentecost, which is one of the three main feasts that every male Jew had to go to Jerusalem for. So Jesus is obeying, I like this, the word of God in going to the feast and he's not obeying some man-made law that the Pharisees are making up. Now, now to our point. Now, look back at verse 1 and 2. Notice, there is what kind of a gate? What does it say louder? Come on, I need your help. It's a sheep gate, right? <clears throat> now, there's a pool. It's, they're called the pools of Bethesda. There's a couple of them there. Some of you might have been there. They're, they're dry right now. But at that time, they were, they were filled up. And, and then it says they were, there's five porticos. Now, let's put this all together because I want to show you the picture that John the disciple is painting. So first off, there's a sheep gate. There's a, there's a sheep gate. That's on the northern side of the Temple Mount. Now, this sheep gate is where they would bring in the sheep, bring it into the city for the sacrifice of Passover. They'd bring the sheep in there. Now, these sheep were the ones that were brought in from Bethlehem because the Bethlehem shepherds were the ones who raised the sheep that would be sacrificed at Passover. So now you begin to put that together and you realize when those angels, when the angels appeared to the shepherds the night Jesus was born in Bethlehem, 
those shepherds were actually the ones raising, caring for the sheep that would go through this gate and eventually go to be sacrificed at Passover for every family. Isn't that an interesting thing right there? So now you have this, but then you have the pools of Bethesda. Now, Bethesda means house of grace or house of mercy. Beth means house. House of grace or house of mercy. Now, you put that in there. So you have, here you have the sheep gate where these animals are coming in to be sacrificed. And then you have the house of mercy, house of grace. But he doesn't end there. He tells you there's five porticos. The number five is a very interesting number in scripture. It is also the number of grace. Because when Joseph, as we'll see later on in the story in our Sunday teaching, when he sends the brothers back with supplies, he gives Benny, his younger brother, he gives him five times as much as all the other brothers. That's a sign of grace right there. Five times as much. He takes, Jesus takes the five loaves, multiplies it. That's grace, number five. You also have the fifth part of the Lord's prayer. Lord, give us this day our daily bread. There's grace right there. So you follow these numbers, numerical things in Scripture, and you realize five has a logitude with grace in, in, in Scripture. Now you put that all together with what John has here. So you know that the sheep coming through the sheep gate, that's a picture of Jesus being sacrificed on the cross. You know the pool of Bethesda, house of grace, house of mercy. He's come to bring the grace and the mercy of God into our lives. The number five is also thrown in there as the grace of God. And so now you see this picture that John is painting, and it's not done yet. Here comes Jesus. Here comes the sacrifice. He's bringing grace. He's bringing mercy to mankind. Now watch where he takes it now. Look at verse 3 and verse 4. It says, In these, now, <clears throat> in these lay a multitude of those who were sick, um, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after stirring up the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. Now, here's the picture. Now, take everything I said now. Let's paint the picture even further. Here's this place. There's a bunch of sick people. They're lying around this pool, these pools of Bethesda. What are they waiting for? The water's to stir. Now, we know in our life, which they did not know back then, that there was an underground spring in these pools of Bethesda. So this would stir the waters periodically. We know that now. They didn't know that then. So more than likely, this is what John is referring to here is a superstitious thing. They're superstitiously waiting for this water to stir to put themselves in there, but we really can't be sure. All we know is from John is that when that water stirs, all these sick people laying around, it becomes a race now to see who's going to be the person to get into that water so they can be healed. Now, we don't know, nothing's written, that anyone was ever healed. We know nothing about that. All we know is this story right here. But it's not really a race. It's more like who can drag themselves fast enough to get to that water, to put themselves in, so they can possibly be healed of whatever they need to be healed of. Can you imagine the pathetic picture this is? All these poor people, they're waiting and waiting and waiting. And then there's a stirring of some water. And here they all go. They're trying to drag themselves in to be the first one in. It's like dog eat dog. Now, 
Let me widen the picture out even further. Let me give you some background stuff that happened in that day. In that day, with all this, did you know the doctors could not touch a dead body? Uh -uh. Because if they did, they're made unclean. So they could never touch a dead body. And so if you think about that, when somebody died in this area per se, they could never perform an autopsy on that dead body. Therefore, they could never learn anything. You know how they learn stuff? They performed autopsies on live bodies. Oh, joy, huh? This is what they had to do. And this is the way it worked back then. Now, put it all together. Here comes Jesus. It's the sheep gate. It's a picture of the cross of Christ. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Amen? Pool of Bethesda. It's the grace and the mercy of God. Here comes Jesus to bring grace and mercy to mankind. Correct? And here he walks into this pool of humanity, this, all these people, lame, sick, blind, all right there. Can you imagine what it was like there? Question, can you imagine what it smelled like? Can you imagine what it was like? And here comes Jesus. It's a place no one would come to. And Jesus, the Lamb of God, Sheepgate guy, grace and mercy, pool of Bethesda, and he walks right into the whole thing to bring the grace and the mercy and the salvation of God to these people. Is that a beautiful picture or what? I love that John paints this thing, but it doesn't even end there. Point two in your notes is, is this. The man is a picture of Israel. Now watch this. In verse five, it says, a man was there who had been ill for how long? 38 years. That's not just a number to throw out. This is a very significant number in the story. The man's been sick 38 years of his life. Do you know in the Roman Empire, most men didn't even live to be 38? And this guy's lived to 38, and he's been sick 38 years. He can't walk. Now, you had more pieces to the picture as John's given it to us. Keep your marker here. And turn to Deuteronomy, 5th book of the Old Testament. Look at chapter 2. Chapter 2 and verse 14. Watch this. Deuteronomy 2, 14. Now check this out. When you're there, say, I'm there. Okay, watch. It says, Now the time that it took for us to come from Kedesh Barnea until we crossed over the brook Zered was how long? 38 years. Until all the generation of the men of war perished from within the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. Okay, look up at me. Do you remember when the, the golden calf, the whole thing happened there? And they sinned against God, remember that? Yeah. And then within a couple months, within weeks or months after that, they're knocking at the door in a place called Shidem. They're going to go in. They haven't been out of Egypt very long, but they're ready to go in. But they'd send the spies in, remember that? So within months, they're ready to go in. But then they decide, the people start crying, saying, no, we can't do it, we can't take it. So God has to let them spend the next 38 years in the desert for that generation to die off so though the next generation could take them into the promised land. So they've been in the desert 38 years. We always say 40, but it's actually 38 years. Now, back to John 5. Now we find a man who's been sick for how long? 38 years. Isn't that interesting? 
Now as you start piecing it together, Jesus, the Lamb of God, the grace and the mercy of God, he walks in this pool of humanity and the blind and the sick and the lame, and he's been in that condition 38 years. What is he a picture of? Israel. It's Israel. He's come up to them. He's there. And he's standing among all the lame, the sick, and the blind. Here comes the sacrifice. Here comes the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Do they recognize him? John the Baptist said, One stands among you whom you do not know. And here he is. And here he is. Are you seeing the whole picture John is painting? It's beautiful. It's magnificent. What he's sharing. That here comes the Son of God walking into all this pain and all this wound and all this hurt. No one else is going to go in there, but he's going to go in there. And he's going in there to save people. Now, look at verse 6. When Jesus saw him, we know him is the man who's been lame for 38 years, lying there, and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? Now, just hold off on that question, because some of you are thinking, really, that's the question? Now, I want you to notice something here. Just, just a quick thought. Look back at verse 3. In verse 3, how many people are there? What's the word that's used? Multitude. multitude. So when Jesus walks up, he sees what? A multitude, correct? Now, look at verse 6, though. When Jesus gets closer to it, who did Jesus see? He saw him. He saw a man. He saw one person. Huh. Question. Does more than one man need healing that day? How many people does Jesus heal that day that we know of? One man. But a lot of other people need healing, but Jesus is only going to heal the one guy. So it begs the question. Is Jesus unfair? Look, somebody who's not a Christian would look at that and say, he's unfair. How do you answer that? Because he's not healing everybody there. He's just the one guy. You know what the answer to that is? God can do whatever he wants. He can do whatever he wants. If he chooses to heal one man that day, in my little finite pea brain mind, I don't understand why only one. But one day... He's, we're all going to be healed in heaven as a believer, correct? And God can do whatever God wants to do. And guess what? He doesn't have to give me an explanation, does he? But too many people think, well, he's got to give an explanation. Really? No, he doesn't. Watch this first here. Keep your mark here. Turn to your right to Mark, uh, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 9. Watch what he says quickly. He won't cover the whole chapter of 9, but just make the one statement and we'll, and we'll zip back. And look at nine, Romans 9, chapter, uh, chapter 9, verse 15. And watch what he says here. It's talking about the injustice of God, the question of, is God unjust? Verse 15 says this. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. In other words, can God do whatever he wants? Yes, he can. And, and, and let me tell you something about that. If God chooses to do this, it's a righteous act. If he chooses not, it's a righteous act because he's God. And I don't have to understand everything that God is telling me or God is doing. Now, the question, back at John 5. 
When Jesus says to the man, do you wish to get well? Okay, look up. There's a bunch of people there. Do you think he said, hey, do you wish to get well? Or do you think he said, do you wish to get well? Which way do you think he said it? What if he said, hey, do you wish to get well? What would happen? Everybody. Yeah, over here. Yeah. I, I can't tell you that he whispered it, but I tend to think he must have gone, you wish to get well? And, now, but, but the bigger question is this. Really, you need to ask a lame man if he wants to get well? Isn't that kind of a rhetorical question? Why would you ask a lame man who's been that way for 38 years, do you wish to get well? Why? I'll give you a, a possibility. In that day, and it's still this way in the Middle East and different places, some people didn't want to get well because they made a lot of money begging for money. They would make a lot more this way than getting well. Now let me take that and let me share with you what I've experienced in my lifetime in dealing with people for over 40 years and counseling people. Most people want to get well. Most people want to be healed. But there's some that don't. There are some people that do not want to get better in their situation in life. Some people like the victimization. Some people like to stay angry. Some people like to stay unforgiving. Some people like to stay in poor me. They just, they've been in it so long, they just feel it's, like it's more comfortable for them to be that way. Here's what I have found. Here's what I've observed. And this is not many people, just a few people over the years, that if some people let go of their anger or their poor me or whatever it is, they wouldn't even know what to do with themselves all day. Because now they've defined their life by these things. And once you start to define your life by these things, well, you're, well, let's just call it, you're emotionally institutionalized. Now you're stuck there. Now, I used to be a correctional officer at Chino Prison, like in a previous life, you know, a long time ago. But some inmates, when they got out, they commit crimes so they can come back in because they couldn't make it on the outside. They feel more comfortable on the inside and in prison. Steve, you saw that, right? So they would do that. But that's the way a lot of people, that's the way a few people live today. They do not want to be free. They don't want to break out of it because they just wouldn't know what to do with themselves. Let me tell you about freedom because right now there's too many people where this thing is, is imbalancing itself in our culture right now. When it comes to freedom, freedom requires responsibility, does it not? You've got to take responsibility for yourself. And that's what freedom requires. Now, the greatest example of this, if you ever get in a debate with anybody, especially with a Christian who believes in the Scriptures, and, and, and they go down this road to victimization, and we need to give to everybody. No, you've got to take responsibility for your life. The greatest example that I found is this. When the Israelites were in Egypt under Pharaoh's rule, now, did Pharaoh provide pretty much everything for them? Say yes. Do you think they cried year after year, God, when will we be free? Say yes. So they're crying to be free, and yet Pharaoh's providing for them. When Moses comes along, and now 
He leads them out of bondage and they get out of Egypt and they go through the Red Sea and they find themselves in the desert. Soon you find them saying things like this. Who will give us food to eat? Where will we get water? Let's go back to Pharaoh. It was better then. He supplied for us then. So what's going on? They find out right now in this moment that freedom comes with responsibility, does it not? Once you leave, once you've left that old way, now you take responsibility for your own life. Some people don't like that. Some people like to stay stuck back in Egypt, stuck being dependent. I don't like it. I like kind of carving my own way. I, I, I like the fact that God has given me the ability to do things. Any amens on that? So you take responsibility for your life to do things. Now, number three in your notes, and that's this. Salvation is by grace through faith, not works. Now, we've hit this a lot. We've got to hit it again. We've got to hit it again and again and again because this is one where we get stuck on in life. Now, verse 7 says this. So it's through faith, not works. Verse 7 says, The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Oh, that's interesting. He has no one to help him get into that water, correct? And so when the water stirs, he tries to drag himself. Is, so in other words, if you kind of take a, take a look at the picture, he's unable to save himself, correct? He can't save himself. He's stuck there. Now, <clears throat> Christianity is the only, only, and I hate to use the word religion because Christianity is not a religion. It's a religion. But let me use the word religion. Christianity is the only religion that says you can't save yourself. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. Nothing. But every other religion on the planet says you can save yourself. In fact, you hear different terms like, you know, they're all, all religions are the same, all roads lead to God. But when we did the answer series, remember the answer series earlier this year? The law of contradiction? Two competing thoughts both cannot be true, correct? For instance, Mormons say, in the Book of Mormon, it says specifically, you are saved by grace after all that you can do. My first question with the Mormon is, could you tell me all, how many, how many is all you can do? How many good works? You've heard me say this before. Is it 150? Once I do 200 good works, am I good to go now? Can I just go off and send my head off now that I got the 200 good works in because I'm going to heaven? Can't answer that question. But they say, after all you can do. So grace kicks in, after all I can do? So it's a works-related system. All religions are like that. Christianity, on the other side, says this. Turn to Ephesians to your right, chapter 2. It's a verse, verses that we have visited multiple times, and we will visit it multiple times in the future, because these are verses specifically, these two, that should be given to memorization. Now look at Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9. It says, by, For by grace you have been saved through faith. So it's God's grace through your faith, my faith, and that not of ourselves. It is the, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may, so no one may boast. Here's the basic gist of the difference between Christianity and everything else. Mankind says, I can work my way to God. God says, no, you can't. I had to come down to you. And that's Jesus Christ came down to us. That's the basic difference between Christianity and everything else. Now, number four, here we go. Number four, Jesus picks a fight. And here comes my favorite part of the whole story. 
Jesus picks a fight. In verse 8 and verse 9 of John 5, it says this, Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pallet. It's basically a, like a roll, just roll it up. Pick up your pallet and walk. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. But here's the best line of it all. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. And now it's on. This is the big deal right now. And if you're new to, new to Christianity, this is going to be a, you're going to look at it like, are you kidding me? No, I'm not kidding you. Jesus heals the man. And he tells the man, okay, now that you're healed, the guy's walking around, hey, pick up your bedroll and go, you can walk home now. Go ahead. You think it's going to be a great day, right? But then the question is, what day of the week is it? Sabbath. Louder, what is it? Sabbath. Sabbath. And that's inserted in there because this is the big deal. Now here comes the gunfight at the OK Corral. Now let me give you the background on these Pharisee legalists, why this is such a, um, why, why they're so angered, they're going to be so angered at this. The Pharisees had 39 categories of forbidden activities on the Sabbath. Categories. 39 things you couldn't do on the Sabbath. That's legalism, guys. You do all these, no, you can't, no, you can't, no, you can't, no, you can't. Now, yes, Jeremiah in chapter 17, 21 says this, do not carry any load on the Sabbath. But here's what a legalist does. They take a verse like that or a statement like that, pull it completely out of context, and they'll say, you can't carry anything. You can't lift up anything. In fact, we're going to make a list of all the things that you can't pick up and carry at all. We're going to make a list of all the things you can't do. And they take that one line, pull it out of context, and create all these rules, and they make Christianity a burden that nobody wants to live whatsoever. Context is everything. When you interpret scripture, you've got to look at the context. What's the whole basis for the statement? And when Jeremiah makes that statement, the whole thing was is that all of Jerusalem on the Sabbath, it was just business as usual for them. What he was saying is, look guys, the Sabbath was made for your rest, for you to celebrate, spend time with your family, celebrate the provision of God, God's goodness. It wasn't meant to just sit there saying, well, I can't do anything. I can't lift up anything. And so they take it out of context and they make it a huge, huge burden where you couldn't do anything. So the Sabbath became a prison and it's no longer a pleasure. So by the time Jesus rolls around, he's going to fix that. So he tells the man, once he heals him, pick up your bedroll and, and, and go home. And this is going to set off the fight now. Now, number five in your notes, and that's this. When you live by the word of God, expect opposition. Any amens on that one? You're going to get opposition. It's just going to happen when you live by the word of God. So don't be shocked when it does happen. Look at verse 10 and verse 11. It says, so the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it is a Sabbath. It is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. In other words, why are you carrying that? You know the rules. You know you're not allowed to do that. Verse 11, here's what the guy says. But he answered them. Well, he, meaning Jesus, 
He who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. I like that, don't you? The man obeys the word of God. Does Picks up the pallet, he's healed now. They come along, they scold him for obeying the word of God. You're not permitted to pick up that pallet and walk around. No, the man says, well, the guy who healed me told me to pick it up and carry it. You see what's going on here? It's kind of comical, is it not? So going back and forth. So, <clears throat> see, when we choose to follow the word of God, we're going to expect opposition. Let me put it in a context, a different kind of story that, may, that will make more sense, this whole thing. Let's say, Let's say that you are the man. In 38 years, you've been lame and you can't walk. You can't do much. And then it's Friday night and God heals you. And you're so excited. You go to bed and you wake up early Saturday morning. Five o'clock, Saturday. But you're excited because you can walk. And you have never been able to push your lawnmower. <laughs> and you, at 5 o'clock in the morning, you pull out the lawnmower because you want to experience everything now, don't you? And you crank that thing up. <clears throat> in the neighborhood on Saturday morning at 5 a.m. And you're mowing your lawn and you're singing and dancing and whistling. And this is a great experience. I am mowing. Man, I love the smell of cut lawn. It's so nice. But your neighbor, you wake him up. And he comes walking out. And he sees you. You've been living next to this neighbor who just woke up. You've been living next to him for 20 years. He knows you're paralyzed. He knows you're in a wheelchair. But your neighbor wakes up and says, Bob, why are you mowing your lawn on Saturday morning? Turn that thing off. You're waking the whole neighborhood up. And then he goes back inside, shuts the door. That's not what would happen, huh? If you're the neighbor, you'd walk out and say, Bob, 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 you're walking. It wouldn't matter that it's five in the morning. It wouldn't matter what's going on. Bob, you're walking. You would probably even go to all the other neighbors, knocking on the door. Hey, everybody get out here. Why are you wake me up? Look at Bob. Bob's walking, he's mowing the lawn. There'd be so much excitement, wouldn't there? But not for the Pharisees. Not for the Pharisees. Because this man, Jesus, and this, they have broken their man-made laws. And they're mad. You and I look like, are you kidding me? The guy's healed. No, I'm not kidding you. They would hold on to their man-made traditions. Can I throw one more in at you? You know what this guy had to live in all his life? These Pharisees, this is what they would push as a teaching. That the reason why you were lame all your life, born lame all your life, is because your mother sinned. Can you imagine living with that one? Can you imagine the ridicule? So this is what he lives under, plus the fact he's lame, and all this is put on him, and now he's healed, and they're angry about it. Now watch this. Look at 12 and 13. It says, they asked him. Now they want to know who's the perpetrator. Who's the man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? Where is the guy? We want to talk to that guy, right? Look what the man says in verse 13. But the man who was healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Does the man know who Jesus is? He doesn't know anything about him. Now, this is what I like. 
They ask him, who is this guy? What is he? He goes, I don't know. I don't know who he is. There's a good point in here. Don't expect newborn Christians to know too much about Jesus Christ. Relax. Relax. But Jim, they're doing this out in the parking lot. Relax. They're brand new. All they have is their Christian white belt, okay? You're like a brown belt. They're like a white belt Christian. Just relax. They're going to make it. They're going to grow. You grew. I grew. Relax. And just love those people. Jesus slips away. He doesn't seek popularity. Now, number six, last point you notice, and that's this. The healed man worships in the temple. The healed man worships in the temple. Look at verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold me and look. You have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. Huh. Question, where does Jesus find him again? In the temple. Once he's healed, where does he go again? In the temple. Yeah, I'm going to the temple. Isn't that true that when you've really had an experience with God and when you really know God, you love to come, in a sense, to the temple to come and worship God? You love to be around other believers and worship God? You can't wait for the music to kickstart? Let's, come on, let's get it going. Let's worship God. That's what this guy's doing. I can't wait to get to the temple. Now, <clears throat> little side note. Jesus tells him what? Don't sin anymore. There's speculation. Nobody can prove it. That this man is in that condition because of some sin he committed. But that, nobody knows that. That's speculation. But what I like is this. I'm going to give you two thoughts. First, he's, Jesus says, don't sin anymore. Is that truth? Say yes. We already know we've seen grace, right? So once again, we see grace and truth in Jesus Christ. But let me give you um, a thought that uh, you don't have to agree with, but I kind of find it interesting. Does Jesus like to stick it to the Pharisees? Say yes. <laughs> I think he just enjoyed it. Um, the Pharisees are all standing around probably following this guy. They're, they're watching the whole thing because they want to know who's the guy that healed this guy. So when Jesus tells them, go and sin no more, the guy's been lame for 38 years, guys. You think he really committed some sin that got him in that position? Is it po this is just a possibility. Is it possible that the Pharisees are there and Jesus said it to poke fun at the Pharisees who believed the man was in that condition because his mother sinned. He said, hey, I'm, I'm going to play Jesus now. Hey, and don't go sinning anymore. You think it's possible? Just to just poke fun at the Pharisees for their attitude? I think it is. I think Jesus, I think he toyed with people at times. I think, I think he had fun. Now, verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews, that it was Jesus who had made him well. So he confesses Jesus as, as, as Lord, as the healer. Now verse 16, 17, 18. Let's drive it home. For this reason the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My father is working until now. That's a big statement. And I myself am working. Because what's their beef with the man and what's their beef with Jesus? The man lifted up the bedroll, and he's working, right? That's the beef, right? So Jesus says, hey, wait a minute, guys. 
My father is working until now, and I myself am working. Then verse 18. For this reason, what reason? What Jesus just said. For this reason, therefore, the Jews, the Pharisees around him, were seeking all the more to kill him because, because of the statement before, he not only was breaking the Sabbath, that's one beef, but also was calling God his own Father. Look back at verse 17. My Father is working. That's what Jesus said, right? And now they're saying, but he's calling God his own Father, thus making himself what? Equal with God. These are huge statements right here that are happening. So let me, let me, let me finish it by saying this. They attack Jesus, and he refutes them with a couple things. The first thing is this. He says, you guys, you say not to work on the Sabbath? He's ta- Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. He says, my father's working right now on the Sabbath. You hear what he said? He says, you're telling me we can't do work on the Sabbath? That guy can't carry that? My father's working right now on the Sabbath. Now, did the father rest on the seventh day from all his creative works? Say yes. When he rested from his creative work, did he rest from his sustaining work to sustain and uphold the universe? He never stops that, does he? He's always working there. He's always holding our life together. He rested from his creative work, not from his sustaining work. And this is the point that Jesus is making. The Father's still working. He rested on the seventh day from the creative work. So what does Jesus tell him? What is he doing to them? He's correcting their theology. Theology means the study of God. He's correcting it. And, and they don't like that. They're really upset about it. But notice what they interpret by what Jesus said. Here's what they interpret. They recognized in this whole thing that Jesus called God his what? Father. Thus making Jesus what? Equal with who? God the Father. They understood it. They saw it clear. Did Jesus correct that thought? Say no. Never corrected them. Never did. He said, you're right, basically. And here's what he's finished off. When everything's said and done, basically it's this. They know what he's saying, and here's what he's saying. I'm God, therefore I'm Lord of the Sabbath, and I can heal anyone I want on that day or any other day because I'm Lord of the Sabbath. And man, from that moment on, they are just nuts angry at this guy. And they seek to kill him all the more and the more and the more. Amen? Okay, we'll pause right here until next time. So let's go ahead and pray. Father, uh, thank you, God, that we have have, um, truth like this, God, that we don't have to walk in legalism and make our life such a burden But God, we can find freedom in Christ, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, that we don't have to understand everything, why you heal here, not here. But God, we can trust you that you are right. But Lord, what a great picture, walking into the sea of humanity. You're the sacrifice, bringing the grace of God to all the people. 38 years, picture of Israel, still wandering. Even after 38 years, they're still wandering, still looking for their promised land Messiah. And here you are. You were there in their midst. Thank you, Lord God, that we are able to know you. In Jesus' name we pray. And we all said, amen. If you need prayer or dedicated your life to Christ, please reach out to us on our social media, on Facebook and Instagram at NBCC Norco, or email us at hello 
at nbcc.com. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to share and subscribe to this podcast.